This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today, we're discussing Thai Americans and the history of Thai food in the United States. In the U.S. today, there are somewhere around 300,000 people of Thai descent, nearly a third of whom live in California. There are over 5,000 Thai restaurants in operation across the country. Surprisingly, Thai food arrived in the United States before most Thai immigrants did. In 1965, a white woman named Marie Wilson published the first Thai cookbook in the United States. It was called Siamese Cookery. Unlike other Southeast Asian countries, Thailand hadn't been formally colonized after World War II, but it was home to a U.S. military base, there to help the U.S. keep an eye on China. And Americans began to visit Thailand. Marie Wilson's husband went to Thailand on a Fulbright teacher exchange program, and Marie, who joined him there, used her experience to collect recipes and then publish them. Other military, diplomatic, and cultural visitors to Thailand also returned to the U.S. with a taste for Thai food. By the time Thai immigrants started to arrive in the U.S. in larger numbers, Americans who had any sense of Thai culture had learned it entirely from the perspective of food. On October 3, 1965, at Liberty Island, New York, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Immigration and Nationality Act into law. Johnson remarked that the old system, with national origin quotas, had been, quote, un-American in the highest sense, because it has been untrue to the faith that brought thousands to these shores even before we were a country. One of the main effects of the new law was a marked increase in immigration from Asian countries. From 1960 to 1970, around 5,000 Thais immigrated to the U.S. From 1970 to 1980, that number jumped to 44,000, and it continued to increase in subsequent decades. Many of the Thais who came to America in the first decades were students, coming to study in Los Angeles and other parts of the country. And they were among the first to open restaurants. However, in the early restaurants, the ingredients were not really Thai ingredients. Instead, they were substituting more easily available Chinese ingredients. In 1972, Pramorte Tilikamunkel, who had immigrated to the U.S. in 1966, opened the first 
Thai grocery store in the United States, Bangkok Market in Hollywood. And he brought Thai ingredients into the store, importing them or growing them in Mexico or California. That led to a boom of Thai immigrants moving to the Los Angeles area, and Thai restaurants going up in the region as well, including Tilakamunkle's Royal Thai Restaurant on the west side of L.A. The location of early Thai restaurants, so near Hollywood, meant that Hollywood stars got to know Thai food, and the rise of celebrity culture helped to popularize the cuisine. Tilakamunkle's son, by the way, is celebrity chef, Jet Tila. Although many cities have Chinatowns, it wasn't until 1999 that the first Thai town in the world was recognized. A six-block stretch of Hollywood Boulevard between Western and Normandy Avenues in Los Angeles. Although the area is no longer populated primarily by Thai Americans, there has long been a Thai community there, and the stretch is home to Thai restaurants, shops, and markets. It has been nicknamed by Thais as Thailand's 77th province. The Thai government took an active interest in the popularity of Thai cuisine abroad and pioneered gastro-diplomacy to improve their global reputation and increase tourism. In 2002, the Thai government under the leadership of Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat, launched its Global Thai Program, and various government agencies have been involved in a push to train chefs, research recipes, and export foods. In 2002, the Public Health Ministry published a book called A Manual for Thai Chefs Going Abroad. The Thai Foreign Ministry honors some restaurants abroad with the Thai Select Award. These restaurants need to be owned by ethnically Thai immigrants and must make a number of authentic dishes following the official recipes. In 2014, under the leadership of Prime Minister Yingluk Shinawat, the government-financed Thai Delicious Committee developed a machine to test the authenticity of food. They described the e-delicious machine as, quote, an intelligent robot that measures smell and taste in food ingredients through sensor technology in order to measure taste like a food critic, unquote. The 21st century wasn't the first time a prime minister of Thailand took an active interest in cuisine. In the 1940s, Stridently nationalistic Prime Minister Plake Pibun Sangkram, who wanted to counter the cultural influence of the Chinese population in Thailand, decided to develop a symbolic Thai national dish. The result was Pad Thai, and the Public Welfare Department, as part of a Noodle Is Your Lunch campaign, distributed recipes for the new national dish around the country. Pibun Sangkram saw cuisine, as well as dress, as a way to avoid colonization. As he said in a speech to his ministers, quote, If we were highly cultured, 
we would be able to uphold our integrity, independence, and keep everything to ourselves. Unquote. Joining me to help us understand more about Thai American culture and Thai food in the United States is Dr. Mark Padungpat, Associate Professor of Asian and Asian American Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and author of Flavors of Empire, Food, and the Making of Thai America. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, I have been looking forward to this one for a while, and I learned so, so very much reading your book. So I want to start with, I, I know that food is not what you had originally planned to write your dissertation-turned-book about, and so I wanted to ask just sort of how, how you got here to, to writing a book about food. Yeah, I, I love that question, right, because I think it's important, and I try to tell everyone who would listen, uh, that <laughs> I, I did not set out to write a book about Thai food. And in fact, I was sort of adamantly opposed to doing so because, you know, growing up Thai American, being associated with food growing up, right? That's just how people came to know Thai people. And, and when they would discover that I was Thai, it was always the first comment, right? It was, I love Thai food. <laughs> and then, so I didn't want to perpetuate that. I didn't want to write a book it would just be so cliche, right? In my, in my head, I was like, the, the, one of the first Thai American historians or Thai American, Asian American studies scholars. And of course, he would write a book about Thai food, right? So I, I tried to avoid that as much as possible. Um, and I say as much as possible because once I started graduate school, so I was, I was sort of thinking about writing uh, a book and a dissertation first on the Thai American community in LA. Uh, and that was, as an undergrad at the University of Oregon, uh, and when I got to graduate school at USC, you know, I I was sort of steadfast in that until maybe you know two or three years into the program, where I just it became clear that I couldn't avoid food. I couldn't avoid talking about food, and that's because when I started doing the primary source research, uh, began kind of diving into the source material, which there just wasn't a lot of right and most of the written documents um, were food related, whether it was like a restaurant review that would tell the history and the story of the restaurant owners, or if it was, you know, something related to a food festival and uh, zoning policies and food festival. So it just always seemed to come back to food. And I think that's when I decided that, you know, instead of avoiding it, I think some of the critical questions that I'm asking and interested in related to immigration, identity, uh, activism was actually all going through food anyways. And so instead of just kind of avoiding it altogether, uh, it made more sense and you know, a little bit more exciting for me to say, okay, so what is actually happening through food? Mm -hmm. And why is it that I have such a fraught relationship with it? And maybe I can kind of understand that at a larger scale. Yeah. So you just mentioned source material. I think everyone would want to think you just got to go eat a bunch of food and, then, and that's how you write about Thai food. <laughs> yes, but, yes. but what's actually going on here? You, you talk about sort of a, a dearth of materials. So how did you go about researching this book? Yeah. I mean, again, another really important question. Um, and I think as historians, we all know kind of the value of 
primary source material, but I feel like the work of, you know, a lot of scholars from marginalized communities, whether that was, you know, George Chauncey's work on gay New York or, you know, any kind of minoritized or marginalized population, that that labor of having to create one's own archive often goes unnoticed that, you know, I didn't walk into, you know, a library uh, and I would have loved to, uh, but like walk into a library and say, let me get those boxes on <laughs> Thai American, you know, festivals. And I was just kind of sitting there. Um, I mean, it involved, you know, going uh, to do and conducting original oral histories, right, with people in the community. And I used um, both the, the Wat Thai of Los Angeles, which is the largest Thai temple in the country. I used that as kind of a, a headquarters uh, to meet people and to, to uh, be introduced to contacts and also use the Thai Community Development Center, uh, which is in East Los Angeles, East Hollywood, uh, to kind of get to know people who were in the community and who had been there for a while. Um, so oral histories were really important. But in addition to that, it was like doing the oral histories, you know, visiting people's homes, they would hand over just materials that they had collected or kept um, over the years. And so that also became a way for me to kind of build the archive. Uh, and then I think using traditional materials in what I felt like was reading against the grain or more creative use of those materials. So visiting, for example, the uh, JFK library in Boston and uh, reading materials from uh, Peace Corps volunteers was one way that you know, in my chapter on the Cold War in Thailand and U.S.-Thai relations, I really wanted to know what was going on with Thai food culture during the Cold War. And I felt like the, the, the closest I could get, right, as a historian was to go through um, kind of Peace Corps volunteer uh, oral histories or just written kind of diaries and notes that they had taken. Uh, and I found a lot, right? And I think that that kind of filled in some of those, those gaps. Um, but yeah, just kind of you know, using materials like that. Cookbooks was also, you know, again, using cookbooks and Thai cookbooks, uh, not just as a, a cultural product that like, I'm going to read this using kind of cultural analysis, but as a historical document of when were ingredients available and can we, can we get a sense of that from looking at these cookbooks from the 60s and 70s? And we do, right? You can see the recipes changing. You can see lists of local grocery stores uh, in the back. And so it was a, that, that was kind of a fun way, I think, to, to get at some of the experiences and formation of a Thai American community, even if, you know, the, the, the records weren't robust, right, right, from the Thai American community. Yeah. So in the title, you call it Flavors of the Empire. And, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people who, if, if they haven't thought a whole lot about it, don't think of America as an empire. Wow. So can you talk some about what, what you mean by that, by empire, flavors of empire, and how that uh, specifically relates to this project, to the, the Thai American project? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in the, in the book, I sort of mentioned that that, that title, Flavors of Empire, kind of speaks to two things. One is, you know, literally, and I, and I guess I'll get to whether or not the U.S. is an empire in a, in a second. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, if 
my, my, my argument was that it, it, it is. <laughs> the U.S. is a kind of informal empire, especially at, during the Cold War, in terms of establishing its uh, global dominance and influence. Uh, of course, that looks different than earlier empires uh, and, and how they executed imperial rule, but the kind of informal U.S. empire. And so the, the title, Flavors of Empire, uh, I think captures one that the U.S., U.S. informal empire and expansion abroad, uh, especially in Asia and the Pacific during the Cold War, uh, mm-hmm. quite literally brought new flavors to the United States. I mean, we're talking about uh, new tastes, flavors, cuisines uh, that arrived into the United States or were kind of circulating in the United States even before Thai people got there in large numbers. Uh, and so I think the title refl- is attempting to kind of speak to that a little bit, right? That mm-hmm. um, Again, we get these cuisines, but the kind of structures that make this possible is uh, the very structure of kind of U.S. expansion abroad, uh, whether military or political. Uh, And so I think that that's one aspect of it. But also thinking about how we as historians and just kind of, I think, ordinary the general public understands what an empire is, mm-hmm. right? So the different flavors of empire in terms of the very, the, the, the different kind of manifestations of empire, right? Whether that's hard power and colonial rule and dominance and violence is how like, many people imagine an empire being. But then there's also kind of the everyday soft power of, you know, cultural diplomacy uh, and winning hearts and minds that, is still, to me, as I argue in the book, very much rooted in a kind of colonial logic of, you know, sort of needing to save other countries, uh, in this case from communist aggression, but that we need to kind of guide, the United States felt like it needed to guide these sort of third world people in Asia and the Pacific to modernity and to being modern, uh, kind of civilized, forward-thinking people. And that those mechanisms and the strategies of imperial rule have various flavors, right? Like, like they, they look different and they could be different and it can be enacted through tourism or culinary tourism. And it's, it's all kind of feeding towards or breathing life into establishing the United States' global dominance and influence. Yeah, so expanding on that a little bit, uh, you talk some about the importance of studying transnational history, that, you know, it's not enough to just be like, well, this is about Americans in America, and we're just going to sort of draw the borders here, and, and that's where the project is. And I think, you know, the, this podcast, mostly because it's what I know the most about, is, uh, you know, largely about American history. But absolutely, reading your book, I had to to grapple with that sort of history that happened not just within the sort of quote unquote borders of America, but but what happens before immigrants get here? Why do they come here? What what does that back and forth look like? The episode right before this was about uh, Korean American immigration, and it was a very similar kind of thing. Like, why? What's happening there? What does that history look like? So, can you talk a little bit about that and that that sort of larger role in history and in thinking about how we study history and that it it can't, you know, we can't just say like America only happens within these prescribed geographic borders uh, and, and what that means to, to doing histories like yours. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess I sort of went in 
with the assumption writing the book that it just mattered, right? And I, I felt like, you know, I, I, I felt confident enough in the fact that much of what I was writing about couldn't be written about if we just kind of stayed within the formal borders of the United States. And I think more broadly, what's, what's important about that is, you know, you think about a lot of the, the kind of significant turning points in U.S. history, especially after World War II, right? And it becomes really difficult. And it became really difficult for me to explain those things by just looking at what was happening within the United States, right? Even whether it was food culture, as you say, food culture, migration, politics, right? And it really made me rethink for example, you know, I think about someone like Marie Wilson, who wrote the very first Thai cookbook in the United States, Siamese Cookery, in 1965. And like her traveling abroad to Thailand felt, had a very profound impact on her life in, when, when she came back to L.A. And I, it made me wonder what kind of social and cultural changes uh, happened in her own life, but also in the neighborhoods <laughs> that she had access to. And, and so even then, it, it, it's sort of like, how do we even talk about suburbs, West LA, unless we think about these other global transformations and experiences of the people living in these spaces, right? And I think that, that it, it's, it's important in another way, uh, in that I was also thinking about debates over immigration, Right. And who belongs? Who's a citizen? What does it mean to be native? What, have, what does it mean to be foreign? And so I took an experience like Marie Wilson, who had been who traveled the world and said, even the people who would define themselves as native and as citizens aren't even bounded by this country, <laughs> this country. Right. And so even their experiences are transnational and global. And if that's the case, then migrants and undocumented immigrants can stake a claim to, to the United States as well, right? Because their experiences are also transnational and transcend borders. And so for me, it was, it was sort of also a way to kind of critique how we think about citizenship. Uh, and if we can see and, and see and read in the historical narrative, U.S. citizens who are traveling the world and not bounded here, claiming to be U.S. citizens as well, then what, what kind of opportunities does that afford uh, undocumented migrants or other, other migrants claiming citizenship? Yeah, I like the term you use to ex-documented. And I think that, that that's a nuance, you know, in my day job, I, I work in student affairs, and, and that's a, a nuance we see a lot in that, you know, a lot of people who, who are, you know, currently, quote unquote, undocumented in the United States and throughout the past decades, came with documentation didn't didn't sneak over the mexican border as you know popular culture might lead you to believe yeah exactly and and that you know yeah you sort of hit it on the head so that that term ex-documented was also trying to grapple with that right of you know what does it actually mean to to be i shouldn't say citizen right because i don't think i'm talking about it in a kind of like formal policy recognition of mm -hmm. citizenship but like what does it mean to be part of a place to belong and I think for ex-documented folks, right, it's sort of like we've been here, we've not only contributed, but we sort of established and built lives here, whether or not we contributed anything, <laughs> right? That like <laughs> we have some kind of claim here. We go to work, we cook food, 
uh, we were building lives. Uh, and it just opens up all of those questions of, so how long does one have to live in a place before they can be part of that place? Does one have to be born there? But what if one is born there and leaves and then comes back? Or what if someone's born in Wisconsin and moves to LA? Are they more of a citizen than someone who is undocumented or ex-documented, but has been living in LA for 25 years, right? And so all of these <laughs> questions are, uh, were, were really you know, kind of informing why I think I wanted to make that nuance and why I wanted to kind of tease that out a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit earlier, not just the sort of cooking and, and how we do that, but in, in fact, what food people have access to when they're living in LA or other parts of the US where it might be even more difficult, what what ingredients they have to cook with, how they get that. And and so you go into that in the book. And I think that that's a, a piece that, you know, living in sort of modern America, we take for granted that, that you have access to any ingredient you could possibly want. But what what did that look like over time? And, and how were people sort of grappling with that? Well, we don't have access to the things we used to cook with, or we might want to cook with. Yeah, no. And I think I think you're right. You know, I think we probably could get whatever we want now, whether it's legal or not, you know, I think, <laughs> I think we could probably grow a lot of the ingredients that I talk about in the book uh, in our backyards now. But it is, I think, important to kind of think about that moment of the 60s and 70s when there were larger numbers of ties coming to the U.S. It's, it's one thing to not have the ingredients that you feel are authentic and core for uh, cooking Thai cuisine, right? Mm -hmm. But it's another thing when we kind of think about how policies and trade policies are connected to that. And I think that plays a, a very, or that played a really important role, right? So the, the reason why, you know, Thais couldn't grow or have access to Bai Makrut uh, or Kafir Lime leaves is because trade policies and even state policies around uh, agriculture didn't allow for it to be grown in the United States because they were afraid that it was going to lead to kind of disease, citrus disease among, you know, native <laughs> plants. Uh, and so those barriers led to kind of very creative uh, ways to bring these ingredients over, right? So I think the, the first kind of attempt was to just smuggle stuff from Thailand through personal affects, right? Anybody traveling could bring dried goods, uh, some kefir lime, but obviously that's not kind of sustainable for an entire community or a restaurant industry looking to uh, cook Thai cuisine. And so you had business leaders uh, in the Thai community, Pramot, uh, Tilaka Mongkun, who opened up, opens the Bangkok market in 1971 along with an import-export company to really navigate some of these trade policies in order to import Thai food to the United States. And so you have the kind of everyday personal smuggling of goods. <laughs> you have uh, business leaders in the community who are or, or, or have, not the vocabulary, but they have more insight and experience with trade policies, or they know people who do, um, and can, can make those goods and foodstuffs more readily available, including from Mexico, which is uh, in, in one of the chapters, right, that most of the, the Southeast Asian 
produce that was coming to the U.S. in the 80s uh, was coming through Mexico um, because, you know, Mexico is trying to prove that they're ready for NAFTA, right? And so it's sort of that, that historical moment um, mm-hmm. that makes that possible as well and free trade zones. Um, and so you have that. And then also just the kind of ingenuity and creativity of Thai women in L.A. after discovering uh, that UC Riverside, uh, which is my hypothesis, right? That, that UC Riverside, because they have a huge citrus collection going back, you know, uh, throughout the 20th century, they discovered that there was a kaffir lime tree on the premises and would make this 60 mile uh, round trip, you know, uh, or, you know, one way uh, trek to Riverside to pick these li- by Makrut and then take them home and freeze them so that they can use that for pao and tom yam and all of these other dishes, uh, Thai dishes, um, kind of staple Thai dishes. And so you just have all of these various ways that, to me, really reveal just how important food was for Thai people mm-hmm. and the extent to which they would chase this authenticity, right? And I think I'll just quickly add that you know, what I learned in that process too, is any conversation around authenticity and what is authentic is not just about catering to a white palate or the, the chefs themselves, but also about policy and what people have access to. So let's, let's take it easy on some of the, uh, <laughs> the restaurant chefs who, you know, are maybe in, in cities around the United States and they're getting blamed for not cooking authentic food when, you know, may, maybe there's a, a reason that's not just about them, but just access to certain kinds of ingredients. And so, yeah, I think that, 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 that that's my way to kind of back them a little, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> you, you just said something about food being important to Thai Americans. And so I want to sort of tease that out a little bit because, you know, I think you make a, a pretty compelling case that they're there isn't anything sort of natural necessarily about the fact that there there is such a close relationship in this country uh, between you know ties and food <laughs> that, yes, yeah. uh, that that this is sort of a, a cultural construction uh, and there's a power imbalance but it it does there are actors on both sides that are contributing to this so can you talk some about that and and you know why it is that Thai food is still so hyper visible. When Thai Americans are, as you noted, still largely invisible. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really, you know, a, a big and important question as well, right? And I think, uh, like I argue in the the book, that you know, I think the the groundwork uh, and the context for the United States to understand who Thai people were was through this prism of food, right? That had been established, um, and that that was going to be kind of their entree into <laughs> American society. I, I did not plan to say that, sorry. <laughs> but it would, that, that it would be their entree into American society and that that's how they would be uh, sort of understood compared to other groups uh, where they fit in socially, economically, and culturally to the United States. And I think that that, again, uh, the, the kind of main argument of the book is just having to navigate that as a Thai person in the United States is kind of what constitutes and makes and remakes Thai American identity. So it's not that if you like Thai food or, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much often do you eat Thai food? Like that's, 
that's not to me what the relationship between food and Thai Americans and Thai American identity. It's really just grappling with that, right? And I see this as akin to black men and criminality mm-hmm. as being the kind of racialization of black men. And like no matter kind of how you operate or the spaces you kind of walk in as a black man in the United States, like that's something that you have to grapple with. And that at its core is sort of the um, central to black identity, black American male men identity. And so I think in, in, some, in, in that way, that's sort of how I was thinking about food and uh, food and identity. And you're right, right? Like it's not, uh, I think it goes without saying, but probably important to still say uh, <laughs> that it's not a natural Again, Thai American identity food. It's not. It's not this natural or even cultural affinity for food, right? That I think this is a space, an economic opportunity, a cultural uh, space site that Thai people felt like they could be seen. Uh, and you get people like Tommy Tang, who had you know was the first kind of bi-coastal <laughs> Thai restaurant tour in the United States in the eighties. I mean, he's moving up. He moved up into the upper echelons of the culinary world. And, you know, it, that's open for Thai people and Thai immigrants, right? Because, again, that expectation and that groundwork is laid out for, for them to ascend to that upper echelon. And so I think, and what I mean by not cultural is, you know, thinking about kind of a comparison, right? So, Cambodian refugees have no cultural affinity for donut shops, right? There's nothing <laughs> in, uh, in Khmer culture necessarily that, I mean, obviously there's desserts, but there's nothing, you know, donut shops. Ethiopian culture is not rooted in like, you know, taxi driving, right? But these are industries that have been open to certain groups. And they, to your point, right? The agency there is to seize those opportunities and to make the most of them. And I think that's what we're seeing with, with Thai what we saw with Thai immigrants. And uh, it is significant to say, because, you know, I remember doing an interview for a newspaper a couple of years ago, uh, and they were asking these similar questions. Why do you think it's so popular? What what explains the rise? And I was trying to kind of contextualize it structurally and institutionally. But I think the story ran without any <laughs> without any of that. And was just like, you know, oh, Thai people love Thai food and they're just so good at it. And we're on, we have this entrepreneurial spirit. And then the whole time I'm, I'm kind of reading this thinking like, but I think the kitchen workers uh, were like, so what happens to their entrepreneurial spirit? Do they just not have it? Like, or is that, are they not Thai? Because if Thai people are supposedly, you know, entrepreneurial by culture, what, what about the 80, 90% of other Thai people who are struggling? Um, are they not Thai? And so I, I think it's just, it becomes kind of important to tease that out, right? That like, it's not cultural, it's not natural as much as I would like to think that I can just, you know, be born to cook pot thai. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think that's something innate within me. But yeah, I think that that's, and it just, it's just dangerous in the sense that it perpetuates all of these kind of ideas about innate ability, cultural ability, that then ignores many of the a larger social, political, and economic factors that I try to address in the book. 
Yeah. And so you talk some about the the brand of multiculturalism uh, that existed in L.A., you know, which comes from a good place. Right. But then it can be really dangerous um, because of these sorts of things. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that and, you know, why why it's not enough to just be like, well, I like Thai food, so I'm multicultural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I think for those of us who, you know, have been kind of studying race and racial inequality and inequity, a lot of us do look at, you know, the kind of uh, structural dimensions of this. And by structural, you know, not just, there's not like a, a, a strong sentiment of anti-Thai hate or any kind of like hate. It's just, it's already been built in, right? So like whether that's housing or immigration policy, or even these concepts of citizenship and belonging that, you know, a a cuisine driven multiculturalism, I think doesn't get at that, of course, right? It doesn't get there. It's not intended to, right? It's like going out to eat ethnic cuisine is not, you're not like, oh, I wanted to solve kind of this housing (laughs) wealth gap, (laughs) but it kind of feels like it's an attempt to, right? And so it's, it's sort of one of those things where like, it's not that meant to do that. And there's nothing wrong with kind of eating across other cultures. But I think when it's taken to, well, that absolves me of this, right? Mm-hmm. That we have all of these cuisines, we eat all of these different cuisines, uh, we're welcoming of all of these different people. It then kind of renders inequality, racism, xenophobia to a kind of personal feeling of bigotry and then the in which the solution is just to like people and to kind of love people and accept people whereas i'm kind of thinking about and others as well of course uh, but we're sort of thinking about how do we address the kind of concrete institutional inequalities that are embedded in los angeles Uh, whether that's labor again labor housing immigration where does food fit into that and how do we bring the attention or shift the attention away from just something you feel uh, in terms of racism as, as racism as being a feeling or a bias or bigotry to kind of the structural dimensions of that? And I think cuisine-driven multiculturalism keeps us kind of locked into that feeling, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's what I was trying to work out in the book a little bit. Yeah. And so I think that maybe then ties to these food festivals that you write about that are happening in the suburb, which is, of course, largely white. uh, And, you know, it has certain expectations for what a temple, a Buddhist temple will be like, has certain expectations for what the suburbs should be like and shouldn't be like, and and draws these tensions, these people who will, of course, claim that they're not racist, that it's not about race, but is still creating certain tensions. Can you talk a little bit about that, that piece of it and what is going on with, you know, sort of expectations versus reality versus, you know, personal feelings and structure and and how all these play together. Yeah, that's, no, that's great. So maybe I'll back up and just kind of give a a quick kind of briefing on that, that, that tension. Um, So when the Thai temple, the Wat Thai of Los Angeles was established in 1979, uh, Thai people threw huge food festivals, cultural festivals with food, I should say. (laughs) So large festivals that included food, uh, like every weekend throughout the 1980s in a suburban neighborhood. And the neighbors kind of grew fed up with with that music, just trash being thrown on their lawns, you know, things that I think I would be, as I 
get older uh, <laughs> would be kind of frustrated by as well, right? So I think there's a level of understanding that I have now uh, for that. And so they grew frustrated and to your point, you know, sort of consistently claimed and, and said to local reporters or anybody who was reporting on um, this growing tension between the temple and the neighbors that, you know, they were not racist, they didn't have any kind of bias, that in fact, this temple could be a landmark for their community if it just kind of stayed within what I call, to borrow from George Lipsis, within this kind of white spatial imaginary of a suburb. Um, and what that means is, you know, the way that it's not like all white people think the suburb should be this way, but it's a cultural imaginary, right? In the, in the same way that, you know, um, when we think about beaches, right? What do we think a beach is? For some people, it's sustenance and food. For some people, it's leisure. Um, and these are cultural imaginaries of a physical place. And so the white spatial imaginary kind of sees suburban neighborhoods as, you know, places where uh, that, that value property uh, and property value uh, and home deeds uh, over anything else, right? Mm -hmm. And the exchange value of property over use value of property. And so the Thai temple challenged all of those things, right? They were using private property more for its use value, right? We want people here. We want people to use the space. We want this to be a, pu a public community center. Um, and so I think it, what was happening at the temple really flew in the face of those expectations, as you mentioned, right? Those expectations, that imaginary. And, you know, again, I, I tried not to kind of make it about whether or not the neighbors were biased or racist or had anti-Thai feelings, but I made it, and I wanted to tell more of a story about these different expectations of what a suburban neighborhood could be, and that those expectations were racialized in the sense that, you know, the white neighbors were sort of rallying around this post-war 1950s image of suburbia and Thai immigrants were like, we don't want to stay in our homes, right? <laughs> Even if we live in the suburbs, we, act, we kind of want to see each other and build community. And all of that, I think, is what came to, uh, kind of came to a head in that, that corner of uh, a suburban neighborhood in North Hollywood. In a minute, we'll tell people how to get your book. But in addition to reading your book, which they should do, do you have recommendations for other ways that, that people can, can learn more about Thai Americans, can, can sort of, you know, I, I will admit I love Thai food. I eat a lot of Thai food, but, you know, I, I want to make sure that that is not the only way that I am engaging yeah. with the Thai American community. So, you know, what, what would be your recommendations? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of scholarship, right? Uh, even, you know, with my book, which I hope, you know, people would sort of um, challenge, critique and build on just to get kind of more, more work out there. You know, I think, I think of one person, actually, a graduate student uh, at UC Berkeley who's doing great work. So his name is Titi Jam Kachon Kiet. And he is a PhD candidate in uh, South and Southeast Asian Studies at UC Berkeley. Uh, and so he's uh, kind of doing great work uh, on, on Thai Americans. And um, yeah, Jimin Bao, who is my colleague here at UNLV, has written uh, extensively about Thai temples in uh, Central California, 
or in Northern California in Fremont uh, and kind of the similar kind of tensions that grew around temples. Uh, but she's also written about um, the Thai middle class uh, in the United States. Uh, and in terms of kind of what's happening locally at the local level, I would really encourage people to look into what the Thai Community Development Center or the Thai CDC uh, is doing in East Hollywood, right? They're really, they've been, I think the only organization, I was going to say the leading organization, but I think <laughs> one of the only organizations uh, that advocates for Thai immigrants, but is really centered on kind of housing, immigrant rights. They just recently helped launch a uh, farmer's market in East Hollywood. They've taken, I think, a better approach. I don't know if there's like a solidly good approach to kind of redevelopment of urban space, but they've taken, I think, one of the better approaches. Uh, and so I would encourage people to kind of look into what they're doing on the ground. Uh, and they were the ones uh, that I mentioned in my book that uh, took the lead on the El Monte slave labor case as well um, in 1992. And so they've been doing this for a long time. Uh, but I think anybody who's interested in kind of the political work that is happening within the Thai American community, I think that would be a, a good place to start as well. And how can people get your book? Yeah, so you can find my book at uh, UC Press, the University of California Press website. Uh, so my book is available uh, available for purchase there. It's on Amazon as well. And I think Google my book and you <laughs> and you'll probably be able to find it. But I will point you in those at least those two directions. Yeah, no, I'll put a link to uh, it's a it's a great read. And I recommend that people get some carry out from their local Thai restaurant, sit down with the book, <laughs> yes, get yes. sort of all the senses going at once. <laughs> yes, yes. Especially when you get to chapter two, I think you're going to want to get uh, you're yes. going to have want to have some Thai food in front of you when you're reading about chasing the yum. Yes, definitely. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we talk about? No, no, I think that's that that was great. You know, thank you so much for those questions. I'm really grateful, you know, to be able to to talk about my work in this uh, in this space and this venue and on this platform. So, just want to say thank you and yeah, read the book and I hope you find it useful. Well, it's terrific. Everyone should read it. So, Mark, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.